Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Before we jump in, I want to acknowledge some esteemed guests we have with us today. Uh, Adam and Claire Pinard, can you guys stand up and give a wave? No one knows who you are, but so, hey everybody, these are wonderful people. It's such a kind, I set that up horribly, so you're clapping for people you have no idea who they are, but we are a very welcoming church. So Adam and Claire go to uh, our church, our sister church in Indiana, uh, Christ Covenant Church, and they are currently at the PC, uh, Pastors College for our denomination, where Adam is studying for uh, pastoral ministry, and their hope is to plant a church a Sovereign Grace Church in Indiana in the next couple of years. And so I also have some family in the Hartville area, so they're up visiting and with us today. So now when you see them after the service, you can actually greet them for who they are, and now you know who they are. Thanks for being with us, guys. All right, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's second letter to Timothy chapter 3 as we're looking at what is probably a very familiar passage, but no less a very foundational passage for us. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series that we have caught entitled We Believe, which is a studied exploration of our statement of faith. And today we are studying what we believe about this book, about the Bible. So if you're taking notes, the title of our sermon today is The Scriptures and uh, I am really excited about this message because I love God's Word. I love the Bible. Amen? Amen? Yes, we are a Bible church. We love the Scriptures. We are built on them, and so I am excited to dig in with you Bible people into this book about the Bible. So, to get us there, though, to, to lead us into it, let me take us on a little field trip over to... Uh, Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, uh, where we want to look at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is an actual grave where three unidentified U.S. service members are buried. But more than that, it is a symbol, has become a symbolic grave for all the missing and unknown service members who gave not only their lives for our freedoms, um, but also their identities. We don't know who they are. And in a very Christ-like way, they died for us. And so we appropriately honor their sacrifices. There is an inscription on the tomb that reads, Here rest in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. And for Americans, this is about as close to hallowed ground as we get. And it's for that reason that since 1937, there has been a sentinel on duty at that tomb for every minute of every day. No matter the weather, no matter the circumstances, it is always and constantly guarded. The guard on duty marches, if you ever go and watch this, you can pull it up on YouTube and watch. It's fascinating. He marches 21 steps to the south, where he then pauses for 21 seconds. Well, he's faced east. So he's marched 21 steps south, faces east towards the tomb, pauses for 21 seconds, turns back north, pauses for 21 seconds, takes 21 steps back 
turns to the east to the tomb again, pauses for 21 seconds, then turns back south, pauses for 21 seconds, steps for 21 steps, and just is on repeat until he's relieved. Now, the reason for the precision of, of 21 over and over again is it's representative of the military's highest honor that they bestow, the 21-gun salute. So it is a march and a guard of constant honoring. If you go to behold this, uh, one of the things that draws the crowds the most, though, in all of this is the ceremony of changing of the guard. It happens throughout the day, on the hour, or on the half hour, in the hot months. It's an elaborate ceremony where the commanding officer comes out and the new guard that is to take up post uh, comes to attention before the commanding officer and the commanding officer with white gloves and accurate military precision takes the arm, the weapon of the coming guard and inspects uh, with great military precision every component of that weapon before handing it back. And it's only then after their weapon has been thoroughly inspected by their superiors so that it is confirmed. They are indeed armed and prepared. Only then can the sentinel take their post to guard that American soldier who rests in honored glory known only to God. The task of guarding this tomb is taken very seriously and the ceremony of changing of the guard is meant to communicate not only honor and dignity, but also confidence and preparedness. I share all this because our passage today, coming from 2 Timothy, really this whole epistle, is in some symbolic sense another changing of the guard. This is Paul changing the guard to Timothy. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, and he is certain that he is going to die. In chapter 4, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul is certain he's going to die, and so he takes pen to paper, so to speak. He writes a letter to his beloved disciple, his beloved son of faith, Timothy, and these are the last words we have from Paul. These are his dying words. And what he wants to communicate to Timothy is not a teaching, it's not a doctrinal um, deposit, so to speak, like Ephesians. It's not to correct an erring church uh, like he wrote to the Galatians or the Corinthians. What he wants to charge Timothy with is to take up the mantle, to get ready to run the race, to be prepared to fight the good fight of faith in Paul's place. He's saying, Timothy, there are, our battles are going to need to be fought. You are going to be attacked from without. There will be persecution, Timothy. And Timothy, there are going to be false teachers that rise up from within your midst. You're going to be attacked from within. Timothy, you've got to be ready for this. You've got to be prepared. You've got to get ready to guard your post. This is serious, Timothy. And, and so... Paul is transferring the guardianship to Timothy, and in our passage today, what we are looking at here is really Paul with white gloves coming out, the commanding officer reviewing the one weapon Timothy needs for his guardianship, 
The one weapon that he's going to have to have at all times with him. This letter is Paul changing the guard, and our passage is his inspection of Timothy's weapon. And through Timothy, it's his inspection of our weapon. Because this changing of the guard has been passed on from generation to generation, from faithful Christian to faithful Christian, to us and our generation. There will be persecution that comes from without. And there will be false teachers that rise up in our midst. And we have to be prepared. We have to be ready. We sang earlier, mine is armor for the battle, strong enough to last the war. Well, here we have a weapon for the battle, strong enough to last the war. And that weapon is the Word of God. It is Holy Scripture. I invite you to follow along now as I read 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. This is what Holy Scripture says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of His Word. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible about the Bible. It's probably the most important. But before we unpack what it teaches here about Scripture, before we theologize everything that we're going to be talking about, I want you to notice the command that Paul gives Timothy, the commanding officer gives to his subordinate, and that he gives to us today. It's in verse 14. All the glorious truths about about the Scripture here, we can miss this command. So look again with me at verse 14. He says, But as for you, Timothy... And as for you, Covenant of Grace Church, and as for you, reading your word right now, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue in it. Remain. Stay in what you have learned and firmly believe. Don't leave the truth of Scripture. And the reason that this sentence begins with a but, but as for you, is because Paul is contrasting Timothy's stain and our stain in the truth of Scripture with those in the previous verse, verse 13, who do not stay in, but go on. 
Paul says evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That word for go on means to advance, to progress, to proceed. So this is a group that does not continue in, they do not stay in, they do not remain in the truth of Scripture, but they go on from Scripture. They progress beyond this truth. They are the people in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the next chapter, who have itchy ears. And so they accumulate around themselves people who suit their own passions. They are, again in chapter 4, people who, Paul says, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, speculations. So Paul warns Timothy, Timothy, don't do that. Don't turn away. Don't think that it's progress to leave behind this truth. And so that's the main point of this passage in its applicatory sense. Timothy must, and we must not, move on from the word. But rather we continue in, we stay in, we remain in, we root ourselves, we anchor ourselves right here on the Word of God. And then the rest of this passage just gives us some really good reasons why that should be. Why do we just stay here and not move on? And Paul gives at least four really amazing, really good reasons why, why Timothy and why you and why heads of households and why this church, why we don't move on from the Bible, but instead we want to be Bible people in a Bible church. And so here here are four good reasons why you should not do anything but continue on in this word. Reason number one, the teachers of Scripture. The teachers of Scripture. Look again with me at verses 14 and 15. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have fully, firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So one reason we can trust the truth of the Bible is because of the reliable, or the reliable sources from which we learned it, the character of the teachers who teach it to us. Now, my guess is, you didn't expect me to go here. Because when we think about, you know, why should we continue on in the Bible, you're probably expecting, you know, big theological reasons why. The inspiration of Scripture. The authority of God's Word. These theological reasons why, and we will, we'll get to those. They're, they're in this passage, right? You all know that's coming. We'll get there, but I think sometimes we, we theologize more than God does. We make things more technical than God does. There, are, there is, right here, a very personal and a very relational reason why we should continue on in this word. And it's because of the very good and godly people who have taught it to us. Their lives testify to the truthfulness of this word. 
Now, this is, is not an infallible reason uh, of why. Uh, it's not the only reason. There are more reasons, but this is still a reason. And I know, I realize some of you didn't grow up in Christian homes, and so maybe this doesn't relate to you in, in some ways as much as some of, some of the others here, but you know, Timothy learned this word, learned the scriptures from his mom and grandmother. Uh, if you've still got your Bibles open, and I hope you do, Second uh, Timothy chapter 1. Turn back a page or two to chapter 1 and look at verse 5. Paul says, Second uh, Timothy 1 verse 5, I am reminded of, he's talking to Timothy, your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Over in Acts, we learn that Timothy's dad was a pagan, so he didn't learn the faith from his dad. He learned it from his grandmother and from his mom and from Paul. And so Paul says, you know from whom you learned it. You know their character. You know their godliness. You know how their lives befit the doctrines that they teach. So don't move on past that. And the same goes for you. If you grew up in a godly home, you know your parents. You know the testimony of their lives. Hopefully it commends the truth that they teach. I'm trusting that I know most of you parents. I know they do. And as young people, as you grow up, I mean, you ought to weigh carefully leaving the faith of such God and godly and goodly parents that you have. Goodly? Godly and good. Goodly too. Whatever that is. A few applications on this here. First of all, for those of you, or those of us, who have godly teachers, and that's all of you, that's all of us, we should be thankful. Many of us have godly parents who taught us. Uh, many of us have godly friends who teach us the word. We have godly community group leaders who lead the, the word, lead you in the word. Um, if I may say so, oh so humbly myself, you have godly pastors who work, labor in teaching you the word. We all have things. To, thank you. We all have. I got one amen out of that. We all. No, I wasn't looking for an amen, uh, but I'm thankful for it all the same. You have godly teachers, and we should be grateful. Two. Another application. Uh, this one is for all of us who are parents, all of us who are friends to unbelievers, all of us who are teachers in Sunday school, which means they're downstairs teaching right now. And so those of the rest of you, your spouses, pass this on. Uh, those of us who are pastors in this church, so us guys here, we need to remember, though, our lives ought to adorn the doctrines that we teach. And so we need to take seriously godliness because it either commends or pushes people away from the truth of this word. Last application. Uh, this one's just a warning, uh, a pastoral warning. Please be very careful, be very wary of following online pastors and Christian personalities who you don't know their life. You don't know these people. You know what they present you know what they put on their blogs or in their videos. Uh, you know what they speak to or the positions they stand on, but you don't know them. 
And so be very careful in trusting your heart and your mind to pastors and teachers who you don't actually know, who you don't do life with, and who don't have any commitment to you. Okay. Number two. Reason number two. The power of Scripture. The teachers of Scripture and the power of Scripture. Verses 14 and 15 again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Reason number one, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Able. There is power, the word says in the original. There is ability. There is dynamos. There is, God's word is able and powerful to make you wise for salvation and, or through faith in Christ Jesus. My mind goes to Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, illustration from the Lord today, thank you, Jesus. I confessed the first service, I complained about the snow, and the Lord rebuked me, because here it is, I needed it for an illustration from the sermon. So, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there, except they have watered the earth thoroughly, and caused it to bring forth and sprout, and give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall be my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me without success, but shall accomplish what I desire, and be successful in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is able. It is powerful. It accomplishes exactly what God intends for it to accomplish. Theologians call this the efficacy of God's word. God's word works. It's why the author of Hebrews says that the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged swords. It'll pierce you. It'll expose your heart. This word works. It's got power. And in our passage, Paul reminds Timothy that it is this word that is able to make you wise unto salvation. So this word has a specific power, not to convert you. Paul's not talking about conversion. The Holy Spirit does that. But he is saying it's got a unique power to create categories in your brain for why you need Jesus Christ. It reveals your needy state apart from him, you in your sin. It has the power to reveal your potential through forgiveness and being remade in the image of Jesus Christ. It has the ability to lead you step by faith to Jesus for salvation. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons we come to trust a truth is because of the power it has to change us. Listen, if you ask me, you know, Jason, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus for salvation? I could give you passages about why I believe in Jesus. I could give you reasons why I believe in Jesus. We could do a comparative religion here and, and look at why, compared to this, I think Christianity is the best. And listen, what will probably happen is, uh, for many of you, you're smarter than I am. You know more Bible verses than I do. Uh, you know more about other religions than I do. And you could out-argue me. And then at the end of the day, I'd still say this. Well, I know it's true because I am not the man I used to be. There is a biographical reason that is the most powerful reason to me. 
because I have been transformed. I am not who I once was, and you can't argue against that. I call it the witness stand my mom and dad from first service. (laughs) There is power in this word to prepare us for Jesus Christ all the ways that it illustrates salvation in the Old Testament, all the ways that it reveals our sinful need, all of that is a convincing reason to never move on from the truth of this word. There is no other power like it to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Answer number three, or reason number three. Reason number three, the author of Scripture, the author of Scripture. Verses 14 through 16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. One, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Two, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And three, all scripture is breathed out by God. He is its author. This is one of the most important sentences in all the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God. Theologians theologians call this the inspiration of scripture, but might better be called the expiration of scripture. It comes out of God's own mouth. He breathes it. Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God breathed out specific words through His Holy Spirit, which John 3 calls the breath of God. He breathed out specific words moving in certain prophets and apostles to write those words down. That's how we got the Bible. That's how we got Holy Scripture. And that's what is spoken about, that process of the Holy Spirit, God breathing through the Holy Spirit, through apostles and and prophets, so they write down what we have as the Scripture. That's the process talked about in 2 Peter 1.21. Peter explains, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, But men spoke, that's the apostles and prophets, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's how we got our Bible. Now, I want to explain this a little more, like, how did this work? What did this look like? How did did God inspire these men? Not inspire these men, inspire this word through these men. Uh, So let me give you a theologically technical definition. Okay? So, five of you, this is going to like scratch your itch real bad, and the rest of you, like hang in there. Okay? So I'll give you a theological answer, and then I'll give, I'll give an analogy or an illustration to help you see it. Okay? So here's the theological, you got to be very careful. Theologically, you want to define these things very well. B.B. Warfield very helpfully explains what Peter means here by these men being carried along by the Holy Spirit when he writes, the term here used for carried along is a very specific one. 
It's not to be confounded or confused with guiding or directing or controlling or even leading in the full sense of that word. In other words, there's words for that, and that's not this word. It goes beyond all such terms in assigning the effect produced specifically to the active agent, to the Holy Spirit. What is born, that's the men, is taken up by the bearer, that's the Holy Spirit, and conveyed by the bearer's power, not its own, to the bearer's goal, not its own. The men who spoke from God are here declared, therefore, to have been taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought by His power to the goal of His choosing. The things which they spoke under this operation of the Spirit were therefore His things, not theirs. And that is the reason which is assigned why the prophetic word is so sure. Though spoken through the instrumentality of men, it is by virtue of the fact that these men spoke as born by the Holy Spirit, an immediately divine word. Now, that's some really good theological work right there. And, and that right there, that's the line drawn between mainline evangelicalism and orthodox. Is this all and fully and 100% the Word of God? Okay, so that was the technical theological explanation of it. Let me try and illustrate it for you. Like, okay, Jace, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, thank you, Mr. Warfield. Jace, can you help kind of make this more real for me? Yes, I can. So here's how I envision this, okay? So this is how I think about this. Imagine a little kid, like a one-year-old little, little kid, right, who's just starting to take those first steps, right? Like they've kind of climbed up on the coffee table, and they've got that, like, and then they're collapsing, right? And so what do parents immediately do? It's like, we love doing it. Oh, take them by the hands, and you just start walking with them, right? You're doing so good. Good job. Come on. Yes, that's right. Little steps, little steps. That's right. And all the while, though, what are we doing, parents? We're, we're guiding them. Oh, no, that's the corner of the table. Over here. Over here. Oh, that's the dog. Don't step on the dog. Don't step. Yes, that's right. So they're walking, kind of. They're taking steps. They're using their feet. But who's really guiding? Who's really delivering them to where we want them to be? That is something, it's not perfect analogy, but that's something like the Holy Spirit taking up these men and carrying them along so that they can write out of their circumstances, they can write with their own personalities, they can use the vocabulary that they're kind of comfortable with or that they know, and yet the Holy Spirit can carry them along through all that so that they end up right where He wants them to go. And that's what Scripture is. God's Word breathed out through the Holy Spirit, written down by apostles and prophets. Here's how our statement of faith says it. All of Scripture is breathed out by God, being accurately delivered through various human authors by the inspiration and sovereign agency of the Holy Spirit. We therefore receive the 66 books of the Old and New Testament as the perfect, infallible, and orthodox authoritative Word of God. 
covenant of grace. What this means for us is as much as these translations are faithful to the original, we hold God's very word in our hands and in our laps. I mean, just, can I encourage you right now? Take this in your hand. You are holding the words of the Holy One, the Almighty, the Sovereign One, your Savior. He has spoken to you. This is amazing. This is not just some book. My dad had a rule when we were growing up. You don't put anything on top of your Bible in our house. That was the rule growing up. You don't put other books on top of it. You don't put your journal on top of it. You don't set your Coke down on top of it. Nothing goes on it because this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And so what better to build our lives on than this unchanging, rock-solid, completely true word from our Lord. What do we build our lives on? What do we build our church on but this word? And then all that being said, there's still more needs to be said because I think in all that, it's easy to just see this as, well, that's great. It's a great word of truth. It's a great, word, this great theological work. Okay, great. Yeah, I should study this. But you know, there's something we need to remember that this is more, more fundamentally than a theological work, than a doctrinal document. This is a covenantal document, which is a biblical way of talking about relationships. This is God's word for his people because he wants to have fellowship with us. And so we need to take this not just as words of truth, but these are words of relationship. When I travel, uh, Jenny and my kids often slip things into my luggage. Uh, they have this funny little custom that they started of like putting these little plastic animals in my luggage. And so each kid has like an animal in there. And, you know, Caleb's the elephant and the girls are horses and Lily's a unicorn. And, you know, so each one, and, and so I, I always take them out and I put them in my hotel room or my Airbnb or whatever. And, and, you know, they're always doing funny things like looking out the window or taking a shower or eating my cereal. And, and I take pictures and send it back to the kids and they laugh and, um, Jenny does not have an animal that she sends along, um, but she does send a note um, often, and so do my kids. They send little letters to me as well, and so when I travel, I love to open my luggage and see if there's a little note in there, and, and, but this is how I handle these notes. I, I don't just take them out and just read them real fast you know, before I go off to a meeting or whatever I'm about to do. I always take them out, and I put them on the nightstand so that that night when I'm going to bed, I can, in an unhurried way, read through them. And, and savor the, the funny pictures that my kids drew and the, the words of love and, and you know, all their misspelled words that I can giggle over. And, and not the Ginny misspelled words, but the kids do. And, and then Ginny's got these you know, wonderful sentiments and encouragements and affirmations and <coughs> excuse me words of longing. And, and so as I read this, this is what happens. As I read this, what happens to me? Something happens where I feel 
connected, even though we're hundreds of miles away, I feel connected to my family. And I, and I long for them, and, and I, want to, I want to go home. I've got things to do tomorrow. I've got to teach. I've got to preach. I've got to do whatever. But man, what I want to do right now is go home and be with them and hold them and tell them, I love you, and your picture's funny, and I think you're great, and, and I just love you guys so much, and I'm so proud of you. And, and, and so there's something in all that where I am drunk. I'm reoriented. My mind and my heart are reoriented to my family. And friends, that should be what happens when we crack open this book. Our whole heart and mind is just like, oh my goodness, these are promises from God. These are, these are good warnings from God. These are truths from God. He's speaking to me. This is so helpful. My whole heart and mind is reoriented to the one who loves me and has saved me and is leading and guiding and directing me and caring for me and protecting me. And so we don't just read this as a textbook on theology. We read this as what it is, God speaking words of help and comfort and kind and careness and guidance to us. All right, reason number four. Reason number four, lastly, last point here, the prophet of Scripture, not prophet as in prophets and apostles, but prophet as in P-R-O-F-I-T, prophet of Scripture. Verses 14 through 17, let's look at the whole thing now. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, one, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, Two, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Three, all scripture is breathed out by God. And four, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So scripture is profitable because it is the word of God. It is supremely profitable. It is supremely useful to us. And so we don't want to move on from that. Let me, let me try to show you this from another place, illustrating this from another place in scripture. Um, this is a per- point I heard John Piper make once before. Over in Paul's first epistle to Timothy, he uses the same word for prophet, but in a different way. He says in 1 Timothy 4.8, For while bodily training is of some value, or same word, profit, godliness is of value, is profitable, same word, in every way. So physical training, or bodily training, physical health, working out, eating right, exercising, sleeping right, these are of some profit, some good, but godliness, oh, how much much more profitable is that in every way? And the connection to our passage is if godliness is valuable in every way, now what does Scripture do but produce godliness in us? That's what Paul's saying here. This is how it benefits us. This is how it it, it trains us up in righteousness and makes us complete, equipped for every good work. So it is valuable in every way. Useful, profitable in every way. Uh, let's, let's look at this. Scripture is profitable because it teaches, reproves, corrects, and trains us in righteousness. Now, I see a connection in all of these. Uh, first, Scripture teaches us. It informs our thinking. It renews our mind. It gives us categories theologically. And, and when we're going the wrong way, when we're going the wrong way, that teaching reproves us. It says, hey, that's the wrong way. Then it corrects us. It says, don't go that way. You should go this way. It's like a spiritual GPS. It's like my phone. 
uh, at your earliest convenience, please turn around. You know, like, I'm going the wrong way. So it says, it corrects me, you ought to be going that way. And then finally, it trains us in righteousness. In other words, it gives us turn-by-turn directions to getting there towards godliness. And just an interesting little connection here for the pastors. So I want to speak to Bert and Jacob and Seth and Merrick here today. Um, but all of you, you, y'all can listen in to this conversation we're going to have here for a second. Um, I, I just love I love this um, because one of our favorite passages uh, for pastoral ministry flows right out of this one. If you've got your Bibles open, it's right there. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is one of our favorite pastoral passages. Paul says, I charge you which is significant, right? The Apostle Paul writing with the authority of Scripture, I charge you in the presence of God. That would be enough right there. But then he goes on, and of Christ Jesus, and then he piles on top of that, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I charge you with all this, pastors, preach the word. You want to know why we preach here? Because I'm scared not to. I've been charged. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So what I want to point out to you guys is the parallel here, the direct parallel between verse 2 in chapter 4 here and verse 16 up in chapter 3 in our text. In chapter 3, verse 16, it's teach, reprove, correct, train. And in chapter 4, verse 2, it's preach, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Almost identical. Almost identical. The significant change is teaching becomes preaching. So pastors don't just teach the word. We preach it. Carioso. Proclamation. I feel like I should be Piper here for a minute, but I won't. Because I'm not. It means we proclaim God's word. So for pastors, Paul changes teach into preach, and then he adds at the end, with complete patience and teaching. So in other words, proclamation, but then come down out of the pew and be patient with people and keep opening the word and teaching them. And that's what we want to be, guys. Proclaimers and patient pastors. All right, back to our passage then. Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And then if you look at verse 17, he says that, or so that, so this is the reason, the man of, this is the result, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this is an interesting verse because in the original Greek, that word for complete and that word for equip, they're actually related words. They come from the same root. So Paul is drawing attention to this here because it's a repetition of this word essentially. And, and then the really interesting thing is in the original Greek, they, they actually bracket this verse. So more literally, the verse would read, so that competent may be the man of God for every good work equipped. Competent, equipped. These words bookend this verse, which even more powerfully and even kind of an illustriously way communicates the idea of Scripture's profitability to complete us and prepare us from beginning to end. This book, this book can get it done is what Paul's saying. Now, an application to all this, the profit of this towards godliness, an application of all this, um, my mind goes to 
I have a worship song that I like to listen to a lot right now. It's called Set a Fire. I think it's by Jesus Culture. Anybody know that song? Like, no one? What? Couple, three, four, five. The, okay, excellent, yes. What? Oh, well, I'm going to tell you how it goes, but I won't sing it for you. So um, it's, it's a very repetitive song because it's essentially just a prayer song. It's just a prayer. So the line goes, set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain and I can't control because I want more of you, God. I want more of you, God. Now sing that five, for five minutes over and over and over again, and that's the song. That's it. You got it. It's very repetitive, but I actually love it because it's, it's just dwelling in that place of prayerfulness. And embedded in this prayer and, and the musical you know, buildings in it and all this stuff is this implication of us desiring God to do something unusual. Pour out your spirit, God. Set a fire. Right? It's not saying like kindle a spark. It's like, give me fire, Lord. Jeremiah had fire in his bones. I want fire. And so it's, it's speaking to this kind of unusual outpouring. I listen to it almost every single morning uh, as a prayer because I'm very open to God doing the unusual in our midst, the extraordinary. God just pouring out his spirit on us and there's fire all of a sudden in our souls. And, and all of a sudden, you know, these dead bones, they stand up and they come alive. And I'm saying, Lord, do it. Right? We want chains broken. We want salvations in the moment. We want pouring outs of the gifts. Like, we want God to work in extraordinary ways. But the important thing to note in that is that it is the extraordinary ways. We should be very open for the extraordinary, but God usually works in the ordinary. And it's no less significant. So if all your hope is built on uh, what I called in first service, a, a kind of zapping you sanctification, right? Like we all want to be in the service and we're singing songs and we're like, there's probably just praying like, God, zap me, Lord. Just zap me with holy fire. Like just hit me, hit me, Lord, with it. Make me alive. Make it happen like this. Like that's great when that happens and God is kind and sometimes that happens, but that is not how it ordinarily happens. How it ordinarily happens is we are devoted to the study of and the preaching of this word. And our faith is built and we walk by faith one step at a time. And so the application is for you to devote yourself to the studying of this book to being taught by it and rebuked by it and corrected by it and trained up by it into godliness and prepared for the good works that the Lord has for you. Okay. We need to, we need to land this plane. So in conclusion, let me just give a few final applications for us to think about here, okay? So we love this book. We are a Bible church. Um, we sing this book, we pray this book, we preach this book, we live this book, we fellowship over this book because it is, it is our good. It is perfect and it revives the soul, as Adam shared with us from Psalm 19 earlier today. So, one application for us, bringing back up to mind that First Timothy 4 passage, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. And this book 
is of value in every way because it brings us into godliness. It trains us up in righteousness. So one way we get to applying this word today is to ask yourself, do you give as much attention to, or hopefully even more attention to, this word and the life God wants you to live out of it that is godly and prepared for good works, do you give as much attention, even more attention to that than your own physical well-being? Today's message is an invitation for you to evaluate your devotional life, your uh, attentiveness on Sunday mornings to the preaching of God's Word, your willingness to come out to classes on Tuesday night, your commitment to fellowshipping around God's Word at community group. Does this Word get the weight that it deserves in your life? Question number, or application number two. Application number two. Uh, this came to me in singing during first service. Uh, so it wasn't in my notes, but uh, I felt like the Lord might want to bless someone with this. Um, that there are some here who are suffering and struggling through trials. Uh, I know there are. You're out there. You are, many of you. And part of the hardness of the Christian life, but especially in a trial, is walking by faith and not by sight. Right, what is faith? Hebrews says it's the assurance of things not seen. So there's a certain walk by faith, not by sight, assurance of things not seen. There's a certain blindness that you that faith entails. You can't see. God promises goodness, God promises transformation. God promises redemption. God promises to use it for good. God promises peace. God promises refuge. But you can't see it. For the life of you, you can't see it. And I felt like the Lord gave me this picture of a blind person who has a friend in front of them who's speaking to them. Come on, right this way. The path's clear. Just follow my voice. Come with me. I'll help you get there. Just follow my voice. Come with me. And I thought, that's God's word. That's just God speaking to us in our blindness. Trust me. Follow my voice. I'll get you there. Just believe me. Follow me. I'm speaking to you. These are words of life. Trust me. I'll make straight your path. So if you're suffering and you're you're hungering for a word from the Lord in this. Here it is. Take up and read. All right, last application. Last application. Um, we live in a day that is very hostile, let's say increasingly hostile to our faith. And you've probably noticed there seems like increasing divisions in the body of Christ. Have you noticed that? Like online, but like people are just polarized and split. And, and so here I am introducing this sermon talking about the changing of the guard and the weapon we need and 
And this is the weapon you need to fight the good fight out there. And there's only one weapon and it's good enough to wage this war. We got to take every thought captive obedience to Christ. Only here, man, but here's, here's what I don't want. Don't become a bunch of angry culture warriors or polarizing Christian critics. There are a lot of those out there. There are a lot of Christians who have platforms and they are angry and they are scared and they are impatient and they are dismissive of other Christians and they arrogantly pontificate about their beliefs. And I listen to them and sometimes I think, man, you have got a a theological point here, but you just seem so ungodly, unhappy, divisive. I mean, it's just, there's something in this that's just not good. And so here is what I want to show you, what I want to leave you with. This weapon right here that we need to fight this fight, listen to what this weapon actually does if we're wielding it correctly. John 15, 11, I don't have this on the overhead, so you just got to write that down. John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Friends, what we want to be here is a bunch of happy Christian warriors. Joy-filled fighters. We love God's word and we have big hearts to love other people. And through the trials that our days go through, our age goes through, the trials we endure here, we count them as joy for what the Lord is working in us. And so let's be happy warriors who continue in what we have heard and firmly believe the truth of Scripture, which is spoken for our joy. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, Lord, it's an awesome thing that the Holy of Holies has spoken to us. I'm just convicted about how I don't Reveal, revere your word enough, Lord, and so pray you'd forgive me for that and in spite of that, receive my gratefulness for your word. I love your word, Lord. We love your word. It is so good. Every word of God proves true. Here is solid rock. Here is firm footing. And here is your love expressed to us. And so, make us a Bible people, Lord. Ones who continue in it all our days. And pass it on to the next generation. To continue in it all their days. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen.